Hello everyone, welcome back. We are here back on location for the first Return to Reason podcast of 2020. Get excited. When I say on location, I mean in my amazing home studio, shower curtain and all. Uh, so that's exciting. I really am glad to be back. I don't know about you guys, but break is always one of those things. You know, I work in uh, education, so I'm able to have pretty long uh, holidays in some cases. But even though I'm not excited to get back to work, I'm al- always happy to be back home from, you know, kind of just go, go, go with family and friends, which is good, but it's taxing. So I'm, gl- I'm glad to be back. So, all right, I'm not going to talk about that too much. I hope you had a good break. Hope your holiday was well, you know, as in the title here. 2020 is off to a explosive start. We're off to a bang, um, pun intended. But we'll get to all that. We'll get to Iran. We're going to get to some stuff in tech that's going on. We're going to get to the primaries, impeachment, all that other stuff. But first, I do have to mention that I am so happy that we are not going to have a Patriots Super Bowl this year. I'm sorry for all the Patriots fans out there, but I'm just glad that we don't have a Patriots Super Bowl. And there's lots of people who are like hating on the Patriots, and then there's the counter that's, oh, you just hate the Patriots. It's like, no, it's just I've seen this. I've seen this episode before. You know, you just kind of get tired of seeing the Patriots in the Super Bowl. Only two teams can go, and so it's if it's the Patriots every time, it kind of eliminates 50% of the surprise, right? So I'm glad. And there's some people that think that this will be Brady's last season. I don't think so. You know, it would be funny if he went out throwing a pick six. You know, at least he'd go out with his last pass being a touchdown, right? But uh, it won't be. I think he talked about playing until he's 45, and the dude's only 42. So I think he'll do another season. You know, one thing I was thinking about is, if you know any gamers, or if you are a gamer, if you played games in your life, you know, if you're playing with your friends, sometimes you'll be playing, and it's like, man, I should have went to bed hours ago, I should have put the controller down, but you and your friends are like, no, we just gotta, we gotta end on a good game, we gotta end on a good match, and then you just play until you have a game that is, you know, mediocre enough for you to finally turn the Xbox off. I think that's where Tom Brady is. He should have turned the Xbox off after last season. But uh, he's 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 in that mode where he's like, I got to end on a good game, and so I think he's going to leave it on until he has something other than the way this ended. So anyway, that's all I'll talk about football. I am excited for next week. Uh, Texans coming to Arrowhead. We'll see how that goes. Uh, I think we'll win, but they beat us earlier in the season. Uh, either way, I'm just glad that the, we're not going to have another Patriot Super Bowl. Uh, sorry, not sorry, especially after that sweet video Brady tweeted out like. No time to be afraid or anything like that. And had Christopher Walken, there was a lion and stuff. And then they just go out and just suck. And he throws a pick six. So I guess I am kind of hating on the Patriots. My bad. Uh, It's funny. It's funny. Again, sorry, not sorry. All right, so we'll talk a little bit about where the Democratic primaries stand and some impeachment stuff. And then I want to get to the real substance. But uh, So with the primaries, not a lot has changed since the last time we talked about this. Uh, I will touch on a few of the things that have changed, but mostly the trends have stayed the same. So, for example, Julian Castro dropped out. You know, no surprise. You know, I've been talking about kind of these Bruce Willis and the Sixth Sense candidates that their campaign is dead. They just haven't realized it yet. You know, spoiler alert. So Castro is one of those. I think Booker's in that. 
Honestly, I think Yang is in that based on where he's at and where he's at in like the Iowa, New Hampshire polls, Tulsi Gabbard, etc. So Castro's out. The rest will follow. Um, so that's something that's changed. Sanders is killing it. That dude just, uh, he's polling first in Iowa now. He passed Buttigieg. Not by much. It's like 0.03% or 0.3%. But still, uh, he's basically in a dead heat. He fundraised a bunch of money. So Sanders is uh, kind of pulling ahead a little bit. So we'll see how the establishment reacts to that, especially since Warren is kind of declining. Um, Biden's is still pretty durable. NBC ran a piece today talking about the unsinkable Joe Biden. You know, nothing new there, but he's just still doing well in the polls despite his gaffes. And there's a lot of people that the election for them is about electability, end of story. And they think that Joe Biden has the most electability and the best chance of beating Donald Trump. And that kind of shows you where a lot of people are at on the left, where it's like, I'm not so much concerned about uh, who the candidate is. I just want Donald Trump to lose. And that's fine. But that tells you that none of them are really that enthusiastic about their candidates, right? So anyway, I mean, that's fine. Now, Sanders' uh, supporters and some of Warren's are enthusiastic. But either way, mostly for the left, it's about beating Trump in a lot of ways more than it is about we're really excited for President Biden. Like, who's excited for President Biden? You know what I mean? So anyway, uh, Warren's declining. Buttigieg is declining a little bit. If you look at their just their poll numbers, Buttigieg has been declining steadily since basically the end of November. Uh, but he's still doing good. He's like I said, he's kind of in that dead heat in uh, in Iowa with Bernie. But the dude has nothing in you know South Carolina and some of those southern states. So I don't think he's going anywhere. I did make a mistake last week. So I was talking about momentum and going into the next round of the debates, and that I said that the next debate was February third. That's when the Iowa caucuses are. The next debate is January 14th, so nine days from now, um, which I'm not super excited that there's a freaking another one of these things. But anyway, there's only five candidates that have qualified for this debate so far, and I'm not sure that there's any more that are going to, to be honest. But the five are Warren, Sanders, Biden, and Buttigieg, and Klobuchar. So those five, so we had seven in the last debate stage, were whittled it down to five. And one of the reasons why I don't think Yang's can, uh, candidacy is going anywhere, or again, Tulsi, Tom Steyer has the money to stay in it, but he's creepy as all get out. He's not going anywhere. Anyway, is that because of what you have, the qualifications in order to be in the debates involve where you're polling at and where you're fundraising, Yang's not there. And if you look at where like Yang is polling in these early states, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, etc., Massachusetts, he's pulling at like 2% or less in these states. I think maybe he's at 4% in Iowa. But so he's not going to qualify, and I don't see any indication that he will. Uh, same with Tulsi. Klobuchar is not doing well in some of those later states. So unless she has a great showing in Iowa and New Hampshire, I think she'll be out. So it's increasingly tightening to where, you know, there's there could be some, you know, crazy curveballs that happen here, but it's whittling you know, the, the the field's getting thinner and thinner. Now, one thing that will be interesting about that next debate, I'm not going to spend too much time on it here. Um, I'll do that in my next Sunday stream. But is that it will give that opportunity for these candidates, to, again, to show this rift in the party between the far left and kind of the establishment center left. And hopefully, again, make the case that these are incompatible visions of governance. That's what I have been saying. It's what I'm going to keep saying. 
so I do think that that's interesting. You know, when you have only five people up there, they get more time to talk. They get more time to flush out their ideas. So anyway, so that's where it stands. Not a lot has changed uh, other than Iowa still a toss-up. I'll include a link to this NBC article that was pretty good. They were talking about how it's basically a jump ball in Iowa, and that's totally true. Uh, North Carolina, not as much. Uh, New Hampshire, not as much. But Iowa kind of sets the stage for a lot of this stuff. And if a candidate overperforms in Iowa, people will take you know that second look at them, and then they might they get momentum going into future caucuses. So anyway, so that's kind of where the primary stand. But because next Sunday uh, will be just a few days before that next debate, which again I wasn't super uh, excited to find out about. It means I have to ration some whiskey. I don't want to buy more, but I want to make sure I have enough for that debate on Tuesday, that next Tuesday. But I'll, I'll, next Sunday, my live stream, I'll kind of cover where the candidates are at specifically, any controversy, stuff like that, if there is anything new to cover. All right, so impeachment, we'll cover this a little bit again. Not much has changed since what we were talking about last time, so to kind of bring the class up to speed, remember the House of Representatives passed two articles of impeachment against President Trump, and that was obstruction of Congress, which is completely fictitious charge, and abuse of power, which is so vague, it could apply to any president in the future, but that's what they passed. And then Nancy Pelosi decided, I'm not going to send this over to the Senate because I want there to be a fair trial. And I kind of made the case in my last video that I thought that was kind of brilliant of her to do that. I, of course, I disagree with the rationale, but for, to reframe this as if it's an actual like judicial trial or something like that, I think is pretty smart. But anyway, so nothing has really changed there. They're still at this stalemate. Uh, the, whenever the Senate got back together, there was, uh, at the beginning of this week, uh, M Mitch McConnell made some statements, Chuck Schumer made, made some statements, nothing had really changed, they're still at this impasse. There was an interview, I saw uh, Adam Schiff went on and was talking to Jake Tapper on CNN, I think it was today, uh, that's when CNN uploaded the clip, and Tapper was pressing him like, when are you going to send these articles over? Adam Schiff is like, well, we got to wait and make sure it's going to be fair, and Jake, Jake Tapper was like, what about February? Will this go on indefinitely? And Adam Schiff said, well, probably not February. It won't happen indefinitely. But basically the point is they're still at this stalemate. Um, and Schiff stuck with these, you know, with that, again, I think it's dishonest but intelligent, this talking point Pelosi's been using and that everyone's rallied around. If it's got to be fair, it has to be impartial. You know, Mitch McConnell's not impartial and he's engaging in this cover-up and all this other stuff. And that's what Adam Schiff stuck with whenever he was doing this interview with Jake Tapper. And I've addressed why a lot of that is ridiculous, but I will kind of just highlight just kind of one more piece here of why this is patently absurd and why the fact that Jake Tapper doesn't give him any pushback on this is frustrating. You know, it, outside of the fact that that's not even a, a proper representation of how this works in the Senate. It's just not. It's not like a regular trial. But so Adam Schiff, one of the things he said in this interview, and I'll post a link to it, was he was like, we got to make sure they're impartial. This is about impartiality and fairness. And he used the word impartiality a couple times. Well, what's really fascinating about that to me is that he's talking about this process in the Senate needs to be impartial and how the Republicans need to be impartial. Mitch McConnell and the Republicans need to make sure they're conducting this in an impartial way. That's what he was using. Well, guess who else is going to be participating in this process in the Senate that need to be impartial, right? Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Bernie Sanders, Amy Klobuchar, all these candidates that were in the presidential race who were absolutely in support of impeachment from the beginning. Elizabeth Warren 
went on, uh, what's her name, Rachel Maddow back in April after the Mueller report came out and was calling for impeachment, before any of this Ukraine stuff. So none of them are impartial, which, by the way, they shouldn't be. None of them are supposed to be impartial in this. This is a political process. That's what Mitch McConnell said in the first place. He said, this was a partisan process in the House. It's going to be partisan in the Senate. It's crazy to think it'd be anything other than that. But the point is, is if this impartiality is so important, how do you deal with this? Well, Elizabeth Warren was calling for impeachment before we even had this. Is she going to be impartial? Bernie Sanders said this is the most corrupt president in American history. Is he going to be impartial? Of course not. And that's not how this works. They're going to be biased and the Republicans are going to be biased. Of course they are. If the whole thing was predicated on them being impartial and unbiased like jurors, none of them would qualify to participate because they all have conflict of interest. The Democrats have conflict of interest. The Republicans have conflict of interest. So that's not how any of this works. But the fact that Adam Schiff can go on and uncritically say those things is pretty upsetting to me. On well, about upsetting, but it's frustrating for sure. And I'll get into a little bit of what's going on in journalism right now generally with that. But that's, that's at the very end. So that's where it stands. They're at an impasse. They still haven't sent the articles over. Mitch McConnell's like, this is a political thing. What are you doing? And Pelosi and Schumer and Adam Schiff and the, the rest of them, we got to make sure this is an impartial thing. Uh, so we'll see what happens, but we're still at this stalemate. And again, I don't think this is going to be a net negative to the Democrats, to Nancy Pelosi. I find it frustrating. I think it's dishonest, but I don't blame them for what they're doing. I get more frustrated at people like Jake Tapper, who's usually pretty good about this stuff, by the way. I like Jake Tapper, allowing Adam Schiff to come on and say that stuff completely uncritically. But whatever. We'll talk a little bit about journalism and what's going on there, kind of behind the scenes uh, at the very end here. Okay, so Iran. Uh, Iran, things are happening with Iran. So in, in case you've been living under a rock, uh, <laughs> there's, I didn't even mean to make that stupid pun about Iraq just now. Anyway, we just blew up Iran, one of their main leader dudes in charge of a lot of these kind of militant groups outside of the country. His name was Kasim uh, Soleimani. Blew him up a couple days ago. This is Kind of on the tail end, a couple days after, a bunch of militants stormed our embassy in Iraq. It's been a big controversy. So here's what we're going to go over. I'm going to go through as much of the details as I can without making this thing two hours like I did last time. So I'm going to talk about who is this guy, what, you know, what was he involved in, why is he important, why is he relevant as a person in Iran, why is he irrelevant, or why is he relevant as a military target. I'm going to talk about the response from the Iraqis and the Iranians and a lot of people in the mainstream media and some, you know, folks on Twitter that are, you know, just the general activist types. And then I want to look at the state of what is going on with Iran as a country, with Iran generally, and kind of use that as a lens with which we can use to maybe understand this and see, are some of these responses justified or some of them overblown or some of them just egregiously irresponsible? So that's what I want to look at. So th that's where we're going. First, who is he? So here's a brief. So Huffington Post, uh, I guess they they get all of their good scholarship or all of their good journalism out of the way at the beginning of the year. Uh, they did a pretty good piece just talking about who this guy was generally, about who Soleimani was. So uh, to quote Huffington Post here, uh, they say, Soleimani was the head of Iran's Quds Force, an elite unit within the country's Islamic Revolutionary Guards. So remember those Islamic 
Revolutionary Guards. We'll talk about them in a minute. That carries out high-level foreign operations across the Middle East and trains Shiite militias in Iraq. In April, the Trump administration designated the Revolutionary Guards as a foreign terrorist organization. It's not just our country that doesn't like the Revolutionary Guards. Again, I'll talk about that in a minute. Soleimani took over as commander of the Quds Force 15 years ago and achieved notoriety as he spread Iran's influence across the Middle East, training and arming new militias to carry out Tehran's agenda. General David Petraeus, a retired U.S. Forces commander and former CIA director, described Soleimani in an interview with Foreign Policy as the architect of Iran's attempts to take over an area of the Middle East known as the Shiite Crescent, which spans from Iran to Iraq, Syria, and southern Lebanon. He is responsible for providing explosives, projectiles and arms, and other munitions that killed well over 600 American soldiers and many more of our coalition and Iraqi partners just in Iraq, as well as many other countries, such as Syria, Petraeus said. So this guy, you've probably heard maybe proxy wars kicked around in the media. So Iran has what's called regional interests. So they mentioned this, this area called the Shiite Crescent. So Iran has interests in expanding and taking over parts of territory that are in other countries. So that's Syria, that's Lebanon, that's Iraq. And so they have interest in expanding. And so what this guy did was he, there was this revolutionary guard, and there was other groups that he would train to destabilize these areas, to make it easy so that whenever Iraq, or not Iraq, when Iran expanded, it was easy for them to do that because of the instability going on in this Shiite crescent. And, and this, so there's a guy who, I'll, again, I'll put a link to his video here uh, in the sources. This is, there's a dude in the UK who's a YouTuber. His family's from Iran. He has more friends and family in Iran. And he covered this pretty well. He put out a video today. And he said, look, like there's been protests in Lebanon and in Iraq against this revolutionary guard within the last couple weeks. So it's not just the U.S. that labeled them a terrorist organization. We're the only ones. People in these other parts of the, of the Middle East recognized what they were doing, recognized these proxy wars Iran is fighting, which these are the Shiites, so any Sunnis are opposed to it, and they protested him in these other countries. Bahrain, I think, is one where they protested this guy. So he's not popular in that area generally, because he's been responsible for these destabilizing actions for almost two decades. So that's, that's who, who he is and what he's been doing, okay? And one of the things that he was responsible for was those storming, those people that stormed our embassy just, you know, right before this happened, and other things that have been going on in Iraq. And whenever we finally blew him up, he was at the Baghdad airport, and this guy has made statements before calling out the U.S., calling out the president, saying that it's just we're just like gamblers, cowboys, not going to do anything. You know, he has people close to our officials that they would not even know where these are. And so this is just another attempt by him to just, you know, imagine if, so we killed that al-Baghdadi guy, right? The Islamic State dude. Um, imagine if before we killed al-Baghdadi, he had just perpetrated, like, taken responsibility for this terror attack and then showed up at a Baskin-Robbins four blocks away right afterwards, you know, as in, like, what are you going to do about it? That's kind of the equivalent of what Soleimani did 
like he knew that we knew that he was responsible for what happened at the embassy and the fact that he showed up at the airport was such a brazen show of defiance and a great opportunity and he didn't think that we were going to do it you know we called off that airstrike not long ago we don't have a history of enforcing these things very well you know obama drew that red line in syria and then didn't enforce it and so he it was a brazen thing by him and so we blew him up that's exactly what happened it was intentional for him to be there at the airport kind of a challenging kind of thing like what are you going to do about it and he in his rhetoric supports that that's not just my opinion his rhetoric supports that up up until this point obviously he's dead now so anyway so that's who he was he's the architect of all of these militant groups in the area to destabilize the Shiite crescent so that Iran could expand and take over the Shiite crescent. They have regional aspirations. They want to grow. They want to expand. And he was the one helping weaken the outside areas of Iran so that they could do that. All right. So that's who he was. He's not a good dude. All right. So I'm going to talk briefly about kind of some of the, like their response in Iraq and the response in Iran, and then with the media, all right? So there was, uh, today it was reported that Iran, Iraq's parliament voted to expel U.S. troops from the country, and this was a big deal. And first off, people have to make up their minds. A lot of the criticisms of this move by Trump was, oh, he's just embroiling us in another forever war in the Middle East, and he's, we're going to send more troops there. And then when it's reported that well, Iraq doesn't want our troops there anymore. Oh, can you believe that? Now they don't want our troops there. It's like, we got to pick one, dude. Like, is it a good thing for us to have troops there or not? But, of course, they don't have to be consistent about this as long as they're opposing the orange man. Um, but anyway, so it was reported that Iraq voted on this. It's a misrepresentation. Here is, this is from CNN. This is the, this is the vernacular of what they uh, passed in their parliament. So, quote, the Iraqi parliament voted Sunday to obligate Iraq's government to, quote, work towards ending the presence of all foreign troops on Iraqi soil, according to the media office for the Iraqi parliament. First off, this vote, there was a lot of people in their parliament that didn't vote. It was kind of a symbolic kind of thing. Secondly, it's all foreign presence. There was people on the right that were like, oh, they want to kick out the U.S. and they're leaving Iran. Like, what does this mean? It's like, no, this says to end to get all foreign troops out of Iraqi soil. So it's that's a good thing no matter what, in my opinion, I think probably. At least for a lot of people that are anti-war, you would think, get, it, get our troops out, get the troops out. That's good. But it's all foreign troops. The other thing, listen to how vague that's worded. I mean, does that sound like, so, like something that's really substantive or something symbolic to you? Work towards ending the presence of all foreign troops on Iraqi soil. Work towards ending the presence. I mean, come on, man. Like, again, it was largely symbolic. And even if it's legitimate, even if it's something they're going to do, it's all troops. It's not just us. That includes the Iranians. That includes anyone else that's there. So it's not just expelling us. And, you know, it's not basically the way it's been reported is like an eviction notice found, you know, the U.S. rolled up to one of their military bases and it's like, you've been evicted pack your stuff and be out by Tuesday. It's not like that. The wording is very vague. It's mostly a symbolic thing. The other thing that was reported was that Iran, oh, they put they ended the last bit of the Iran deal and there's no limitations on what they're doing. And as a response to the Soleimani stuff and how, you know, this they're going to be enriching all of this uranium. This was misrepresented so poorly in our in the in the US uh news outlets that Iran's own foreign minister tweeted out a correction because of how badly this was misreported. 
because uh, so here's what they they were saying that they just completely were ending all adherence to the nuclear deal, which was a garbage deal anyway. But what the Iran's nuclear minister said, or Iran's um, foreign minister tweeted out that no, 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 all they're doing is they're they're ending one specific part of the J J O I don't J O P A or whatever I don't J O C A something like that. Um, whether they can have as many centrifuges operating as they want. That's it. That's literally the only thing. And he even says, quote, that they can reverse this upon implementation of recipro- reciprocal obligations. In other words, if the U.S. Come back to the, comes back to the table, then they'll reverse this. But every other part of the deal, they're, they're going to continue, or at least somewhat continue doing. It's just the centrifuge thing. But this was misreported so bad that Iran's own foreign minister tweeted out like, no, 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 this, that's not accurate. Anyway, also, does, whenever he's tweeting that out like, hey, we'll reverse this if you guys want to come back to the table, does that sound like something like we're at war when we're talking about this stuff on Twitter? Like, of course not. Anyway, so here's been some of the reactions uh, in the mainstream media and on the left, and this, this is pretty frustrating generally. So that yesterday, of course, I get this bevy you know whenever i get like one news update by like nbc or cnn i know the it's going to come pouring in from everywhere so i get it from huffington post and npr and all of them afterwards but it was was this legal was this legal that we did this yes of course it's legal because one it's not an act of war again this dude has been killing people in that area for a long time that's an active u.s war zone in iraq where we were welcome to be and he was there. He was responsible for what happened at our embassy. He's done stuff in the past. Like, no, it's not an act of war. And you know how I know that? Because we're not at war. We're tweeting back and forth with Iran right now. Yes, it's perfectly legal to do that. It's irresponsible for all these ridiculously hypercritical pieces to come out and whether or not it was legal for that to happen. There was another uh, kind of uh, bevy or, or uh, I don't know, genre is probably not the right word, but uh, criticism that was in the media where it was, well, this was based on this idea that we were, we had these impending attacks that he was behind. And now it seems like, well, we don't, we don't have the evidence for that. And what's that, that was just that tidbit was parroted largely in a lot of the news outlets. Whenever in that same interview I talked about earlier between Jake Tapper and Adam Schiff, what's funny is Tapper asked Adam Schiff about that. And he said, and Tapper is like, well, people were saying that this is a razor-thin claim. And even Adam Schiff was like, yeah, I wouldn't call it that. I wouldn't say it was razor-thin. Yes, there were indications that there were plans, that this guy had explicit plans of things he was going to be doing in the future. But then Adam Schiff said, well, but we don't know by killing him that that'll make keep the plans from happening. But he was like, yeah, no, there, there were future aspirations. But there was a bunch of stuff. I read this piece in uh, on Reason.com about how you know, it matters. You know, if we don't have the evidence that there was some impending attack, well, then it just makes it seem like we just did this so Trump could be a tough guy or something like that. It's like, well, first off, they can't disclose all of the the information, the intel on how they get this stuff. They can't say, yeah, we knew it because Greg over here, we have all these embedded spies and all these intelligence operatives, and that's how we knew. Go ask him, this deep cover asset we have. Like, of course not. So they're not going to get out there and say, we had all this information because you can't do that. It's usually acquired through sensitive means, and so they'll disclose that as they can. But the other piece of it that's ridiculous to me is the idea that that it has to be either or. 
that it can't be, because that's what that piece on Reason talked about. Like, well, surely he had blood on his hands, but why now? Like, we don't know that there's anything coming up. It's like, no, it can be both. Punishment occurs both directions, right? Like, if there's a person in jail and they're maybe eligible for parole, they don't get parole if they're if it seems like they're going to go commit more crimes. So in other words, they're there as punishment for their past crimes, right? But then they remain there so they don't commit future crimes. Like it can go both directions and so the idea that we have to pick one is absurd to me. But it's just it's all these like nitpicky weird criticisms against this and there's a lot of these outlets that have been kind of also in a roundabout way defending Iran as a result. Uh, and a lot of this has come from celebrities and activists on Twitter. The, I'm going to give you two of the, the best examples of this. And I use the word best very uh, sarcastically here. But So Colin Kaepernick tweeted out, There is nothing new about American terrorist attacks against black and brown people for the expansion of American imperialism. Now, the... The amount of ignorant recklessness it takes to spew crap like that is so absurd. We'll get into, you know, the black and brown people that are killed. You know, Colin Kaepernick is not, doesn't seem to have any regard for the black and brown people that Soleimani killed in the area, in in that region, that was responsible for the deaths of. Um, So it's just reckless. Rose McGowan tweeted out, she had this, it was a gif of a Iran flag, and it said, Dear Iran, The USA has disrespected your country, your flag, your people. 52% of us humbly apologize. We want peace with your nation. We are being held hostage by a terrorist regime. We do not know how to escape. Please do not kill us. Hashtag Soleimani. Okay, obviously that's insane, right? Like, does she not know how to use, like, Southwest Airlines website? You can get air, air tickets online. You can go to another place. She, she says she's literally calling the U.S. government a terrorist regime and saying we don't know how to escape. Colin Kaepernick said that it was an American terrorist attack that killed Soleimani. And this is, this is stuff that's just garbage. There's a, there's a lot of this. Those are just a few of the gems. But basically, the general reaction that's happened here, whether it's the media saying, well, was this even legal? Which, yes, it is. Or these activist celebrities on Twitter spewing this ignorant and vile crap has been hypercritical of the Trump administration for doing this and defending Iran in a lot of ways as a result of this. And by the way, let me just say on the front end, I I have no problem with criticisms of moves that are like, well, what do we think will happen? You know, people should be concerned about getting into, you know, again, endless wars, things like that. They should be. They should say... Is this going to result from this? And i that's the job of journalists. That's the job of us as citizens to say we're concerned. What's the fallout going to be? And for journalists to cover it uncritically and say, well, here, here's what this guy was. And what are the odds of that happening? Like, that's totally fair. Uh, I don't think that in the same way that I have a problem with Jake Tapper uncritically letting Adam Schiff spew crap, I don't think that we should be uncritical of whenever the government says, well, this is why we did this and we don't have to worry about it. Like, yeah, we need to ask questions, but it's a matter of do we accept the answers to those questions and how, I guess, how critically are we thinking about the the premise of those questions? That's what frustrates me. I think you can have all the problems or criticisms or questions in the world. It's just a matter of do you accept the answers? And are you 
criticizing, like Rose McGowan is and Colin Kaepernick, this is about them hating Trump. That's what that's about. They're called, they're saying the Americans are terrorists. Where we live under a terrorist regime right now, and I'm going to get into Iran and the specifics of Iran here in a second, and, ex- and that'll hopefully explain why this is so effing insane. Those responses, okay? But that's about them hating the president and hating this the current executive, like with the administration. Not about them being all for Iran and them shedding tears for Soleimani. This guy was a bad dude, okay? So criticism and having questions about potential conflicts—that's good. But just doing this just because you don't like the president or because you don't like the administration and just trying to find things to nitpick at, especially if it means defending the evil Iranian regime, that's irresponsible, that's reckless, that's detestable. So let's get into Iran. Let's talk about where is Iran right now as a country, how did they get there, and how likely is it that Iran is going to engage in some war with us or something like that. So the important thing to know about Iran right now is... Up until 1979, it was a pretty secular country, actually. They were westernizing. They had a, it was like called a constitutional monarchy. The last leader, I'm going to I'm gonna be reading a lot of names I can't pronounce uh, in the next few minutes, but his name was Reza Pahlavi, something like that. And anyway, they were, they were a westernizing country. And then in 79, there was an Islamic revolution that was led by this the Shiites. That's why, and that's who's in power now. That's why they want to take the Shiite crescent, because the Shiites have been in power in Iran. That's the mullahs. That's the it's it's a theocracy. They also part of that revolution included there was a Marxist groups in the region, and they also helped in the revolution. Now after it was over, the Shiites turned the crosshairs on the Marxists that helped them, which basically got rid of any secularization left in Iran and turned it into this theocracy. But anyway, um, at this time, before the revolution happened, there was an interview with the guy who was the last Shah, this was the last leader of Iran before it became a theocracy. And he was asked, uh, if the government today were run by the mullahs, and presumably the interviewer was going to ask him what would happen. Mullahs is who runs it now, right? So this is 1979. But Pahlavi cuts off the interviewer and he says, they would take us back 1,500 years. And that's, that's what he was thinking then. He was saying if, if the mullahs, which is who runs it now, took control of this country, they would set us back to the Stone Age, basically, in terms of where we're at socially, where we're at in terms of our values, all of that kind of stuff. And I'm going to go through where Iran has been just for the last couple of years. And you tell me if you think he was right in where the, where the mullahs have brought Iran and the Ayatollah for being in this theocracy of where, how they're doing as a country, okay? So this is from just a couple months ago. This is from October. Uh, there's a Middle Eastern publication called Abawaba. I'm going to include all these sources like I always do. Quote, young Iranian street dancer Sahara Afsharia got arrested for uploading a video of herself dancing on Instagram. This week alone, two other women were also arrested for dancing in public, and activists are enraged. There's a reporter in the Middle East who is covering this story, and he tweeted out, quote, Her family told me they've been threatened not to speak to the media. This week, two other women were also arrested for the crime of dancing. Hey, world, can you hear us? So these, there's these girls that upload. It's just kind of like a, just a little, it's like a, it's a regular kind of dance. It almost looks like a, some type of, like, it's just 
two-step tap dance type thing. Like, I don't know how to describe it. I don't know what the genres of dance are. But it's not, like, sensual or anything like that. But they're being arrested for dancing in the street and uploading those videos to Instagram, okay? Right now, in Iran, right now. This is something that the Human Rights Watch has been covering. Here's a, a piece from them from 2018, so a year and a half, two years ago. Beirut, quote, Iranian state television on July 9th, 2018, broadcasted apologies by several women who were briefly detained in May for posting videos of themselves dancing on the popular Instagram accounts. Human Rights Watch said today, on the same day, Shaparak, last name I'm not going to try to pronounce, who took her headscarf off in public in January to protest the compulsory hijab laws announced on her Instagram page that a court sentenced her to 20 years in prison for this act, although it suspended 18 years of the sentence, how lenient, meaning she only has to serve two years in prison. Okay, so they've been arresting people for dancing. This woman took her hijab off to protest the compulsory law for them to wear it she was sentenced to 20 years in prison, and they only gave her two. She's going to spend two years in prison for taking a hijab off in Iran, okay? Here's a story from, this, from July of 2019 about how the foreign minister, so this is a public official, foreign minister defended their policy of allowing the execution of citizens for being homosexual. Quote, homosexuality violates Islamic law in Iran and can be punishable by death. Several thousand people have been executed for homosexuality since the 1979 Islamic Revolution, according to some rights activists. A reporter from German tabloid Bild asked, quote, to this Iranian official, Why are homosexuals executed in Iran because of their sexual orientation? The official responded, Our society has moral principles, and we live according to these principles. These are moral principles concerning the behavior of people in general, and that means that law is respected and the law is obeyed. So again, since that revolution in 79, when it became a theocracy, thousands, one estimate I read earlier today put it at about 6,000 gay people have been killed just for being gay in Iran since 1979. That's insane. Um, in, this, in January of 2019, they hung a guy for the crime of, quote, sexual intercourse between two men. So this is something that is actively happening, actively happening, and they're their actual government officials are defending it. And then here's another thing. This is frustrating. I'll explain why here in a second. So this is from CNN in December of 2019. So as of this recording, a month ago, a month ago, quote, one of the worst crackdowns in decades is happening in Iran. Here's what we know. Iranians are no strangers to protests. Rarely, however, has the government response seemed quite as brutal as this. A little over two weeks ago, protests were sparked by eye-watering gas price hikes and morphed in nationwide anti-government demonstrations. The government acted quickly, pulling the plug on the internet and unleashing what Amnesty International described as a bloody clampdown. The Human Rights Organization estimated Monday that at least 208 protesters had been killed in 21 cities, citing credible reports. Mir Hussein Mosavi, the opposition leader who spearheaded the 2009 Green Movement in Iran and has been under house arrest since 2011, compared the country's current supreme leader to the Shah who was overthrown in the country's 1979 Islamic Revolution and called on the government to respond to protesters' demands. Quote, whining and tapping into global war is not a convincing response to the people, 
And these illusions cannot heal the deep and dangerous wounds inflicted, he said. So he's saying, look, the government is pointing to, they're saying, oh, we're going to be at war and the West this and the U.S. that. And this, this guy who's an opposition leader in Iran said, look, that's not convincing to the people. The people are pissed at the government. The people are pissed at these claims. They're arresting women for dancing. They're upset about that. Trying to point to the U.S. and foment those agitations isn't going to work. All right. CNN followed up that piece with another one just a few days later. Again, this is a month ago from this, from this moment of me broadcasting this, right? A month ago. Quote, Iran was shooting to kill protesters. The Human Rights Office, the UN Human Rights Office, said it had information suggesting that at least 208 people were killed, including 13 women and 12 children. It said at least 7,000 have reportedly been arrested across the country. The government imposed a nationwide internet shutdown for over a week. The UN High Commission for Human Rights Office had received footage appearing to show security forces shooting unarmed demonstrators from behind while they were running away and shooting others directly in the face and vital organs. In other words, shooting to kill. So that's the state of Iran right now. Okay, They're executing gay people. They're arresting women who are dancing and posting it on Instagram. They're sentencing women to jail for taking their hijab off. Two, sentenced to 20 years, serving two years in jail. Just don't even, let's not even talk about the sentencing. There's a woman who's going to spend two years in jail for protesting the mandatory hijab laws in Iran right now. Okay, Within the past month, they arrested 7,000 citizens that were protesting and killed 208 including 13 women and 12 children. Does it sound like they're pretty stable right now? Does it sound like that government is capable of engaging in some big war with the United States when they're arresting 7,000 of their citizens because they're freaking arresting people for dancing on the street? Does it sound like a stable situation in Iran? Of course not. Of course not. And this is, a, this is another important piece of this, and this plays into what we're going to talk about here in a second. But... It's, it sh we shouldn't gloss over the fact that the, the piece from October of 2018 said that they, so the uh, Iranian state television broadcast apologies by several women who were detained for posting videos of themselves on Instagram accounts. Okay, so Iran has a state-run television agency, and whenever this stuff happens, they bring on people and have them do these apologies and that's, that same state-run agency is where we're getting these videos that CNN and all the others are playing of these big mass mourning in the streets over Soleimani's death. It's only going to be that. It's a state-run propaganda wing of a theocratic government that's killing gay people for being gay. Okay? I imagine, so this is how credible this is. All right, so CNN, all these others running these clips from Iran state-run television, as, just as if it's just, this is how it is. Imagine if they did the same thing with news segments from North Korea's state-run television agency and put those pieces on their websites, on CNN's website, and saying this is what they're reporting in North Korea uncritically. As if that that was not some insanely biased propaganda wing of the government. That's what they're doing by showing these protests of people mourning Soleimani 
showing clips of people in uh, the Iranian government shouting death to America, which, as if that's newsworthy, I thought that was just called Tuesday. Like, since when is someone in the Middle East that hates America chanting death to America some new thing? Like, I'm sorry, that's, it's like a, it's a trope, it's a cliche at this point in time because of how common it is, alright, so that's not newsworthy. But they're parroting this stuff that they're getting from a Rand state-run news agency, the same one that's making women come on and apologize because they danced on Instagram. Okay, this is not trustworthy stuff. And again, I, I'll put it in the, in the sources, but the guy who has family in Iran, he has some clips of people privately celebrating their homes, of people that are there saying, like, we are glad this guy is gone. We're glad this guy is gone because there are people in Iran that hate the mullahs, that hate the ayatollahs, that hate this oppressive theocracy they live under, and they're not worried about the United States blowing up Soleimani. They're mad at their government, which is what that opposition leader said. So anyway, what's frustrating, and, and this kind of goes into what we're going to talk about here in a second, is the fact that the same news agencies that were rightly, I'm going to pick on CNN here because that's where I'm getting, I got those last two articles from, but it's not just CNN. But the same news agencies that were, again, rightly show, like, talking about, look, these are human rights violations happening in Iran a month ago, a month ago, have went radio silent whenever it comes to covering that because we blew up Soleimani. It's not like all of a sudden that situation has changed. It hasn't. But Soleimani's dead, and it's an opportunity to criticize Trump and so there, or the repel or whoever, you know, right now it's Trump, but I think if it was, if he was impeached and it was Mike Pence, it'd be an opportunity to criticize Pence. I'm not trying to make this about Donald Trump, but the point is, is they've dropped all of that. It's, it's all, they've dropped all of that so that they can run these things. Well, was it legal that we blew up Soleimani? Oh yeah. And they're still hanging gay people, but they're not, you know, they're not talking about that. And that's what's frustrating. And so I'm only going to briefly touch on this. I want to do a whole podcast just about what I'm about to talk about. But this plays into some of the impeachment stuff and the stuff with Iran. So I'm going to briefly touch on it. I have a, a Google Doc. I've got a bajillion of them that I just has my sources and stuff I use for this. But one of them is just articles to comment on. So if I come across something that seems interesting but I don't have time to, to look at it in the moment... I'll put it on there and I'll go and I'll look at it and say, okay, is this something or is it nothing, you know, and just delete the link if it's nothing. So when I was preparing this live stream a few days ago, I came, I was looking at those articles and one of them was about this thing that's kind of been coalescing in journalism and in some corners of academia over the past couple of years. Uh, it's a concept called strategic silence. And what it is, is it's basically a justification of unapologetic uh, news media bias by journalists and censorship under kind of a vaguely defined rubric of responsibility or affecting social change, something like that. And in the same way that there has been, you know, some of this, there's stuff that's cropped up in our mainstream vernacular over the past couple of years that it wasn't there and then it was. So like, white privilege, white fragility, um, standpoint epistemology, some of these kinds of things. Like, n if you were to talk to someone in the mainstream, or, to, you know, toxic masculinity, those kinds of things, 10 years ago, they wouldn't know what you were talking about, and then it, it's just there. It's, it's been in the mainstream. Well, that trickled down from this activist corner of academia, 
And this strategic silence is in that same category in terms of it's it's got a, a corner of academia. I'm not going to get into it. Um, that's where it's kind of stemming from. I've read a lot of the scholarship. I, I was talking to my wife yesterday, and I was like, I am down a rabbit hole, dude. This is crazy stuff. And so that's why I want to do a whole thing about it. But I just want to give a few quotes from some of these reports and some of the scholarship that is used to justify this because it totally relates to the stuff with Iran and the way that's being covered with impeachment and how that's being covered. And I think one of the things, you know, I talked about this during my last live stream of stuff that I'm expecting going into 2020, tech censorship. This is kind of the justification for that. People don't trust journalists. They don't trust the media generally right now. I was talking to my brother the other day and I said, I trust at least that I can understand MSNBC and Fox News infinitely more than NPR or CNN. Because Chris Matthews and Rachel Maddow and Tucker Carlson and whoever else is on Fox News, I don't watch Fox News, but whoever, I, like, I know what their bias is and I can filter what they say through that lens. But there's a lot of other media outlets that don't do that. And people generally right now don't trust journalists. There was a, a poll that was done, I think it was a year and a half ago, and it was, you know, it was like about trustworthiness in institutions. And it, the, with the way the news media covered it, they were talking about how people trusted the government or Donald Trump or whatever. It was, I forgot what percentage it was. It was pretty low. But what they didn't cover was that same poll or that same survey showed that people trust mainstream media even less than they do the government. So there is just widespread distrust. And what I think this strategic silence is, is kind of a a post hoc justification to go back and say, yes, we are biased. Yes, we present things in a slanted way. There's a reason for that. We're unapologetic about it. And that's kind of where this strategic silence stuff comes from. There's a group called Data and Society. They partner with a lot of academics and come up with some of these reports. They've had some of the more controversial reports that have come out in the last couple of years where they like tied people like, Dave Rubin to far left, you know, or far, not far left, far right, alt right, people that are overt racist. They had this kind of spider webby thing where they were saying that like Joe Rogan and Sam Harris and Dave Rubin were the same as people like Stefan Molyneux or maybe Mike Cernovich was in there. I can't remember. But where they're saying if you talk to this person and this person, anyway, data and society, they're, they're biased hacks in a lot of ways. I think Becca Lewis was the author of that piece and she's also been responsible for a lot of the stuff that they've come up with for strategic silence there's a whole thing about this best practices of journalism and there's a thing about what they give oxygen to again i want to do a whole show about it but here's some quotes to kind of give you a just kind of the bullet point understanding of what strategic silence is and how it relates to this and how i think it's going to increasingly kind of shade the way we're seeing things that are reported or not reported in the future. So this is from Data and Society. I'll include links to all this stuff. Quote, the Media Manipulation Research Institute uh, initiative of at the Data and Society Institute is concerned precisely with the legacy of this battle and discourse in the way that modern extremists undermine journalists and set media agendas. Media has always had the ability to publish or amplify particular voices, perspectives, and incidents. In choosing stories and voices they will or will not prioritize, editors weigh the benefits and costs 
of coverage against potential social consequences. In doing so, they help create broader societal values. We call this willingness to avoid amplification or amplifying extremist messages strategic silence, okay? So here's where the language matters. Here's where specificity matters. Here's where definitions matter. Here's where concept creep, which is where you expand the definition of something out to include things that don't make sense, why that matters, okay? So here's from a, here's from a report that is in that same, it's, I don't think it's data in society, but this is one of the bigger reports that, so the Guardian covered this, they quoted this Neiman reports thing is a huge piece about strategic silence, the importance of it, and it feeds back to some of this academia. I'll give you the sources, but I'll, I'll get into that in a different thing. Anyway, quote, journalists often withhold details of mass shooters and suicides to discourage copycats. I'm going to stop there and explain again where, you'll notice it here in a second, but the point is, is that whether it was data and society, Neiman reports, any of this, whenever the Guardian covered it, any of this, the way it's framed is in the same way that they talk about, like, so at the early 20th century, like, actual KKK rallies, actual Nazi uh, events or whatever, okay? So real deal, egregious stuff. They talk about mass shooters here, uh, ma manifestos that ma mass shooters come up with, things like that. Those are things that we can all agree on. But in the same way, if you've heard me talk about the way they cover like cancel culture and outrage mobs, they'll take things that are objectively bad, like whenever they, uh, in one of the pieces about It Chapter 2, said, well, in, you know, they compared Pennywise, who is a objectively evil entity, to people who are, quote, you know, bigots or prejudiced on Twitter, which is a subjective term. They, they do the same thing with the strategic silence. So they put it in the context of actual Nazis, actual Klan rallies, stuff like that, mass shooters, manifestos. But then this is what they say. So I'll start, I'll start the quote over again. Journalists often withhold details of mass shooters and suicides to discourage copycats. Should that strategic silence be extended to extremist speech, misinformation, and propaganda too? There's another thrust of the strategic silence movement to stop journalists from sharing not only shooters' manifestos, but incendiary political and cultural speech, and to even debunk it, even when it's coming from the White House. So they transition from, you know, how responsible is it if we go cover the chili cook-off that the local Klan rally is having this Friday? You know, if Channel News 9 goes down there to talk to Jim Bob, about how the Klan is doing this week. You know, that's a that's a different thing, but then they switch to, so that's objective, for the, you know, for the most part. That we can, for the most part, most of us can agree that's evil, right? But then they switch it to incendiary political and cultural speech, even if it's coming from the White House. And they go on and they say, this has gotten much more limited momentum. A review by the progressive research organization Meteor Matters for America suggests that in the case of untrue tweets by President Donald Trump, for instance, media outlets continue to more often amplify than filter or rebut them. Well, first off, Media Matters is a biased hack organization that just tries to take you know, quotes by Tucker Carlson and uh, Ben Shapiro in them out of context. 
and get them deplatformed and turn their sponsors against them. Which, by the way, all's fair. That's an independent group. They can do that. Again, this is one of those things where I don't really have a problem with what Media Matters does generally. My problem is citing them as a legitimate truth teller in here, even if they say they're progressive. But they're saying, look, like this is, we, how are we going to treat incendiary speech? Well, as defined by who? Groups like Media Matters? Like, really? Um, anyway, but that, that article, which is a huge article, really, really long, they g vacillate from Nazis, KKK members, and mass shootings to my, mainstream conservatism and the president's tweets and back so seamlessly that there's no indication that the author is even making a distinction between them. And that's the problem. Here's where, this is a quote uh, from Data and Society's best practices for journalism, right here. The underlying task for any journalist hoping to make socially responsible choices is therefore to understand how the institution of journalism is itself the system being gamed by manipulators. So, this is how does this play into what I'm talking about with the impeachment and all the other stuff? The point is, is whenever I talk about bias, and if I, you know, I've talked to people about when they say, well, how can you say NPR is biased or CNN is biased or whatever? It's not just in what you cover, it's in what you don't cover as well. It's in what perspectives you choose to omit, what details you choose to omit. Go back to, that's why this is relevant with Iran. They've all of a sudden, because all of its wall-to-wall -wall coverage of the way this stuff with Soleimani has been handled, they're now omitting the human rights violations stuff that they were covering a month ago. So that's, a, that's an example of strategic silence in that they're not covering that anymore. And they might switch back to it. Who knows? But the point is, is that bias doesn't just exist in what you say or what adjectives you use. It's in what you don't cover as well. And strategic silence is literally building a foundation of, look, this is why we're doing this. Because increasingly, with the way social media works, with the way the internet works, the, the people see the emperor is not wearing any clothes here. It's easier and easier to identify bias in the mainstream media. And again, if they're honest about it, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with Jake Tapper uncritically interviewing Adam Schiff in the same way I don't have a problem with Tucker Carlson uncritically interviewing a conservative. That doesn't bother me as long as they are open about that bias. And what this strategic silence is, is coming up with, again, it's a post hoc justification for the bias and the what is clearly um, motivated, in some cases, activistic journalism that people have been noticing for the last few years. And that's what this is. And so, in the same way that the impeachment stuff, where they're only covering, they're un uncritically parroting Nancy, what Nancy Pelosi says, that's an example of strategic silence. N not covering the protests in Lebanon just a week ago to Soleimani, or in Iraq just a week or two ago to Soleimani, that's an example of strategic silence. Only covering that one perspective. And so, it, we need to be keen to this and understand that this is only going to continue. This is a justification of censorship. This is a justification of activistic journalism by saying, well, this is the same as the way, you know, we were socially responsible in the early 20th century about covering Klan rallies and Nazi stuff. That's what the Data and Society and what the Guardian, they t did a whole thing about, 
how journalists had to make these decisions then, but then they do the bait and switch and well, what about incendiary speech coming out of the White House? It's like, well, that's subjective. You move from something, Nazism is objectively evil. The KKK is objectively evil. Saying that the president's tweets or, or anything even similar to that is in the same category is is a bait and switch and it's biased and it's a it's hack journalism at best and it's dishonest activism at worst and and propagandizing things uh, so look for that to occur even more just another example before we kind of close this thing out i was taking a break from that rabbit hole the other day and i saw the new york times had printed this big piece about how prager university was this right-wing propaganda thing now prager dennis prager is he's not shy he's a conservative that's fine but they have lots of people that do videos for prager u and to say that this is some concert like far right you know they talk about it's a right-wing propaganda thing and in that new york times article they quote the southern poverty law center which again is a is super far left group again this is the same like imagine if so there's a reason, you don't have to imagine, there's a reason why I don't cite Fox News or the Daily Wire or the Federalist or anything on here because most people don't take that as, you know, and, and I don't cite MSNBC as credible news sources either. I want to cite the things that most people are getting information from, but if I was to say, to basically uncritically give an opinion piece from Dana Perino or, or something like that, at you know, th that would not be, it shouldn't be taken seriously. And whenever the New York Times cites the Southern Poverty Law Center or whenever Media Matters is cited by Data and Society, it's the same kind of thing as if I was up here saying, well, Tucker Carlson said it, you know it's true. And so it's, it's all slanted in that one direction and people are keen to that. And so that's why they're trying to backfill this and say, no, there's a reason we're biased. It's because we want to make these socially responsible decisions. Anyway, but that stuff with Prager University was the same kind of thing and we're seeing pieces that have been written over the it's been really ramping up about the past four or five months and it will continue to that are justifications for censoring these websites for censoring these media outlets whenever i was getting into the scholarship for this strategic silence they go back and they cite pieces from washington post from new york times from the new yorker etc like and the type of thing like this new york times piece was about prager university as justification for things like strategic silence so anyway, be on the lookout for this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a whole thing on this because, one, I haven't even finished all, reading all of the papers and the, the kind of the impetus, what is what I'd say maybe the academic jargon that is justifying this, but it's all window dressing and just trying to, it's very thinly veiled activism is what it is and justification of censorship because as people are waking up to bias in the media. They're saying, okay, we need to come up with a new strategy. We can't just say we're unbiased. Instead, we can say, no, this is strategic silence. We're not going to cover incendiary hate speech, stuff like that. That's why definitions matter. That's why we, whenever people say hate speech isn't free speech, it's like, no, hate speech absolutely is free speech because we don't have an agreed upon definition of hate speech. So you might think something's hate speech that I don't agree with. I might think something's hate speech you don't agree with. So we need to have as little limits on speech as possible, as long as it's not actively inciting violence, like explicitly, or putting people in, in, in explicit overt danger, etc. People need to say, be able to say what they're going to say, and other people need to have the freedom to say, no, I disagree, that's stupid, 
and let sunlight be the best disinfectant and let the marketplace of ideas do its thing. But this isn't this is something that flies in the face of that and it's they're creating a foundation of justification for censorship, for you know, this responsible affecting social change in journalism. That's what strategic silence is. So all right. That's that's where I'll end it. But whenever I'm talking about kind of asymmetrical coverage of things or asymmetrical coverage of perspectives on you know, whether it's impeachment or like I was just saying with the RAN or whatever, that's where that's coming from. That's that strategic silence. So bias isn't just in what you say or the adjectives you use. It's what you choose not to cover as well. Uh, something to think about. Oh, and again, just to make sure I'm clear about this, I don't care if people are biased. Just be honest about it. That's all I care about. I want people to be transparent as possible. Say what you want to say, and then we can decide from there. Um, I try to do that here. I try to be honest about where I'm coming from, about what I think about things. And you can decide if you think it's right or if you think I'm full of crap. Anyway, okay, so we're, good. we're about done, but I kind of want to end it on a positive note because I was a little bit cynical in the way I ended it last time, which I'm cynical all the time these days, so that's going to happen. But I was like, you know, I, there, there are a few things to be excited about. So I was thinking about this today. Um, you know, again, I, I'm not, a, I hate cancel culture. I hate some of this like woke scolding, Twitter mobbing, all that kind of thing. And I think there is some reason to be a little hopeful, at least in a few corners of, you know, what you could maybe say entertainment or whatever, but there's a contingent of people in comedy that are saying, nope, nope, not going to bow to that. I think JK Rowling did a little bit whenever she didn't, you know, they tried to take her down on Twitter, try to cancel her, and she didn't apologize. Uh, but this is something even more so in your face. Uh, so two things that I'm encouraged by. First is, Ricky Gervais has taken a lot of crap for some of the jokes he makes on Twitter. And, I mean, like a lot. And he's just basically said, look, I'm going to keep making these jokes. The more you get mad at me, the more I'm going to do it. So just be aware of that. And there's a lot of people that have tried to cancel him, you know, get him deplatformed. And he said, yeah, I don't care. F you. And he still hosted the Golden Globes tonight. It wasn't like a Kevin Hart kind of situation. He still hosted the Golden Globes in spite of all the criticism, in spite of all the blowback that people have, have given the Golden Globes, that he's gotten, etc. I think it was either Slater Vice wrote a piece just today. Um, I think it was today. It was either today or yesterday. Aimed at the Golden Globes about, this is Ricky Gervais. He's just trying to offend people. Why are we platforming him kind of thing? And he still did it. And I, so I did a run-through of this earlier. And I was on Twitter afterwards, and after I had my whole outline done, and I saw a clip of one of the things Ricky Gervais said at the Golden Globes. This is amazing. This is amazing. Uh, so I, I jotted it down really fast before I went live. But this is what he said, quote, and he's talking to Hollywood here. This is amazing. If ISIS started a streaming service, you'd call your agent, wouldn't you? So if you do win an award tonight, don't use it as a platform to make a political speech. You're in no position to lecture the public about anything. You don't know anything about the real world. Most of you spent less time in school than Greta Thunberg. So if you win, come up, accept your little award, thank your agent and your god, and F off, okay? And he's right. He's totally right. And he was, you know, being honest. And there was some applause. We could tell some people, you know, I mean, I'll be interested to see, because you know that there are people that had their little political speeches planned, you know, and so I wonder if anyone actually did it. Uh, evidently, he made a Jeff Epstein joke that the room groaned about, and he was like, oh, yeah, I know you're friends with him, but still, I don't care. So I'm glad. Like, 
Ricky Gervais did not get canceled. He didn't get deplatformed. He's still a host of the Golden Globes. That's awesome. Here's the other thing that I'm encouraged by. Dave Chappelle is getting the Mark Twain Award for humor. It's an annual award. Dave, he took a lot of criticism after Sticks and Stones came out, and then he did a another special. I can't remember what it's called before that. I talked about his latest special whenever it came out. I think it was in August or September, maybe something like that. And it was hilarious, but he made jokes about you know trans. He talked about Ricky Gervais. And not Ricky Gervais, about uh, Louis C.K. and Kevin Hart and stuff. And there was a lot of people that were super critical of him for that and for other like jokes that he's made and tried to cancel him too. And he's still getting this Mark Twain Award. This is this is an award that I think Julia Louis-Dreyfus got it last year. The first one went to Richard Pryor. Uh, Steve Martin has got it. Bill Murray has got it. And this is a this is a legitimate humor award that doesn't just they don't just give it out to anybody. Like, you know, I, I, I like Dane Cook. Dane Cook's not getting the Mark Twain Award, okay? But the fact that he still got that is still being honored as a humorist, as a thinker, in spite of all the criticism that he got after Sticks and Stones, that's a big deal to me. It shows that there is this contingent of people, especially in, in the comedy, who are willing to say, no, absolutely not. You know, I was watching clips from it. I think it airs on the 7th, January 7th. And there's people like Sarah Silverman, you know, who's pretty far left. She's a Bernie Sanders supporter who's praising Dave Chappelle and his character, John Stewart, John Legend, Aziz Ansari, and others who are up there praising Dave Chappelle. And by doing that, that's also a rebuke to the criticisms. They're saying, no, he's a good guy. You might not like his jokes. That's fine. But this is a good guy, and he deserves this award. And so I'm glad that that's happening. Tim Poole did a broadcast earlier. He was like talking about the Golden Globes and J.K. Rowling and how that was evidence that cancel culture is completely crumbling. I'm not so convinced of that. Uh, but it is still encouraging that that there are people saying no to this crap. There are people saying no to the outrage mobs. People saying no to the, you know, the the woke scolds on Twitter. You know, use this pronoun. You know, how dare you say this? Whatever. How absolutely dare you? So that's something to be encouraged by. Anyway, that's it. That's all I got for right now. Um, next week we're going to talk about again the the Democrat debate that's going to be happening on the fourteenth. We'll cover any fallout, again, from the Soleimani stuff, see if we make any progress on impeachment. Uh, if this is the type of stuff you like, please follow me on YouTube, or subscribe to me on YouTube. That's Return to Reason. Uh, follow me on Twitter, at MyMundaneMind. I've been uploading my stuff to Spotify. My last one, I couldn't upload because it was too long. The program I use uh, wouldn't let me do it, so my last one's not going to be on Spotify. Hopefully this one's not so long that I can still do that. But Spotify... Apple Podcasts, it's a return to reason if you want to listen to this stuff. I appreciate that. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you th again, if you think I misrepresented anything, if you think that I was being too generous to the Trump administration or too critical of CNN or anything like that, send me a message, drop a comment, explain why. That's fine. I'll put all the sources here. I'm always open to that kind of feedback. You know, I want to be as I want to be as right and transparent as I can in what I present because I don't just want to be as, you know, lazy and whatever that in the same media people that I criticize. So if there's anything there, feel free to let me know. Um, that's it. Appreciate you watching, and uh, I'll see you next week. Peace.